this morning. And I'm not sure if it's good news or bad news for you. Maybe you can decide. There are less than 50 days remaining in 2022. Seven Mondays. So for those of you who are like, 2022 is terrible, um, you're like excited, you know. And for others of you, you're like, there's not enough time. You know, when we think about a year ending, and we're going to start seeing over the next few weeks those year reviews, the dictionaries are going to pick their words of the year. And as you start thinking about those things, we kind of all have to decide, and you don't have to, you're not forced to, but we probably will, decide what we're going to make of this year, how we're going to call it, how we're going to label it, what we're going to decide it was about. And, and typically, the way that we form that answer is, is basically the answers to two questions. And I want you to just take a second rhetorically as I ask these and, and try to at least come up with at least one answer. What were the highs of 2022? Because you look back over this year, what, what were those high moments, those great moments, those moments that you wanted to like capture in a bottle and hold on to forever? And if you have a couple of those in your mind, hold on to those because I want to go the opposite way too. But what were the lows? What were the moments of like, get me out of here, this can't end fast enough, please, I don't ever want to experience this again, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. What, what were the lows? See, we, we tend to label and think about a year and, and give it a title, good or bad or, or great or terrible, based upon what we experienced and how we remember it. Because you guys are old enough and I'm old enough to realize that there's what we experienced and then there's how we remember it. Because your memory is not perfect. We tend to look back sometimes to sanitize things. We only remember the good stuff or we only remember the bad stuff about a certain moment. And so we have what we experienced and how we remember it. And that's really the past. But with the moment that we're standing in today, there's another piece. And there's what we're experiencing and what we remember while we're in it. This is how we, we, we navigate the past. This is how we navigate the present. There's a moment you're in today, November 13th, 2022, at 9.23 a.m. And you're experiencing things. And you're remembering things right now with the moment that you're in. And the, the way that you go through uh, an experience, good or bad, I believe is largely determined by what you remember while you're in it. What you grab from the past and bring in the present, what you hold on to. And the reason why this is so important, this is our big idea for this morning, is that what we choose to remember ends up shaping who we become. When we're in the middle of a difficult moment, what we remember about God or ourselves or about others, that shapes how we go through that moment. And, and the memories and the things that we hold on to as we go into the future, those shape the kind of people that we become. And this is really important because for the last 10 weeks, we've been in this series on 1 Peter that we've called A Living Hope in a Hostile World. And Peter wrote this letter to some people who were experiencing what may have been some lows. They were experiencing hostility, adversity, difficulty, and suffering. And for five chapters, he tries to help them remember who God is and the living hope that they have in Jesus Christ. And his hope is that by holding on to that hope, they will become a certain kind of person through that adversity. What we've done for the last 10 weeks, myself, Chris Inman, 
Trey Van Camp. We, we've tried to help you see the things that you can and should remember when you're in difficulty, hostility, and adversity so that you become the kind of person God wants you to be because none of us are static. We're always changing. We're always growing. Now, we're not always changing and growing the right way, you know. We're not always changing and growing into healthier, happier, better people. Some of us are growing into unhealthier, angrier people. But what we choose to remember, it ends up shaping who we become. And today, as we bring this series to a close, we're going to get some final reminders from Peter. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd encourage you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 5. It's been fun each week to see some of you guys bring your scripture journals that we gave out way back in September, seeing those get a little tattered and underlined and highlighted and marked up. It's been fun to hear about how God's used this series in your life. And today we're going to close 1 Peter with, I think, maybe some of the best pieces of the entire book. And so if you have your Bibles with you or maybe your Bible app and you got that open, I'd encourage you to stand with us. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, just watch the screens. Beginning in verse 7, here's what Peter says. Casting all your cares on him, him being God, because he cares about you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing the same kind of sufferings are experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you've suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother as I consider him, I've written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, now you can do that kiss part. No, I'm just kidding. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the hope that is present in your word. We thank you for the reminders that you have given us and you are giving us. And we pray that our minds might be focused on good and life-giving things. And I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. In your name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Today, as we bring this series to a close, I'm going to share with you four final truths from Peter. And last week, Chris Emmon did a great job talking about humility uh, but there was a part of his text that he didn't camp out in a ton. And so I said, hey, I'm, if he doesn't m mind, I'm just going to grab part of that text for my week. And he's like, well, I'm not going to be up there, so you can do whatever you want. So I'm doing it. Um, and so the first thing we're going to talk about kind of comes from Chris's passage last week. And it's the first truth. And it's pretty simple. Jesus cares for us. The, 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 as, as Peter's bringing this letter to a close... He reminds his audience just how much God is caring for them. And here's what he says, 1 Peter 5, 7. It's a well-known passage. He says, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. 
Now, the image that, that's here in this idea of casting is, is like you are casting a rod when you're fishing. You're literally throwing it out. And so if you can imagine maybe a, a little bit uh, more concrete, if you can imagine somebody who's got a, a, a rack weight on their shoulders, they've got a bar and some maybe 45s there, and they're squatting or they're uh, going to do a press, the idea is that you have some cares that are on you. And you're going to cast those cares on him. The thing is about all of you that I know when you walked in, you all came in carrying something. But it was invisible. You know it. You can feel it. For some of you, it's affecting your heart rate and your pulse even right now. But nobody else could see it. That's the thing about our cares. We feel them, but nobody else sees them. And what Peter is saying is that he's inviting us to cast our cares onto God because God actually cares about us. And this is the thing I would say going into this season. This is a season where a lot of us end up carrying a lot of cares. We care about the experiences we're going to have. We care about the people who we're going to be with or not be with. The people who are talking to us and the people who are not talking to us. The people who, who we'll be able to have contact with and the people that we can't. And, and what I've seen over the last three years in my life and in your life is that the way we care is not caring for us. For many of you, the way that you're carrying those cares is not caring for your own heart and soul. It's crushing you. You're walking around, not in a gym with a bar and 45s on. You're, you're walking around life. And no matter how strong you are, you cannot walk around all day, every day with a 45-pound bar on your back and 45-pound weights on each side. Nobody can do that all day, every day. And yet some of us are trying. And what Peter would say to us as the way we're caring is not caring for us is that Jesus cares for you. And that may seem elementary and Sunday schoolish and simple, but it's something we need to pause and think about for a second, that we are cared for by the God who created the sunrise you watched this morning and the sunset you'll watch tonight. And every animal that you will see alive and some dead on the side of the road driving home. He cares about you. And here's the thought that has helped me as I've tried to apply this verse, not only this week, but for the last few years. You know those people that you care about, that you're burdened by, that, that are weighing you down as you think about your relationship with them? Here's the mind-blowing thought. Jesus cares for them more than you care for them. Like, I know you care for your kids a lot. The ones who are talking to you and not talking to you. The ones that are coming for Christmas and the ones who aren't. I, I know you care about that person who's, who seems far from God that you want to experience life in Christ. I know you care about that person that you, you, you wish would understand what you're seeing and make a change in their life. But here's the good news. As much as you care for them, Jesus cares for them more. 
And, and the question that 1 Peter 5, 7 invites for us is, can you trust him with them? If he cares more about them than you care about them. Can you take the burden you have for them and put it on Jesus because he cares for you and cares for them and he cares more for them than you care for them? And I have to tell you, at at multiple points in the last three years, I have allowed my care and concern for others to just crush me. To put myself into an unhealthy pattern of breathing, living. And, and on multiple occasions, what I've done is I've got this app on my phone. It's called the Pause app. And it begins each of its recordings that it plays, that I listens to, with this verse, 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your worries and cares on God because he cares about you. And so I just would encourage you this season as you go forward to remember that Jesus cares about you. And though it seems simple, I'd encourage you to lean into that and repeat that and remember that because I believe that's the beginning of shifting from caring for others in a way that's not caring for you to carrying what only you can carry and allowing God to carry the rest. That's the first thing Peter reminds us. The second thing he reminds us is that Satan is prowling after us so he can devour us. Satan is prowling after us so he can devour us. One of the big mistakes that we make is discounting the presence and the uh, attacks and the agenda of our enemy. And Peter's not going to make that mistake here. In 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, be sober-minded, be alert. That's what we are to do. Well, then he's going to say, why? Why should we be sober-minded and alert? He says, because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. So this is what he says. This is what we're to do. Be sober-minded and alert. This is why we're to do it. And then he's going to tell us how we are to do it. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. In early November, the church historically sets aside time to pray for and remember the persecuted church. Who has always been present? There has never been an era in the 2,000 years between when Jesus ascended to heaven and where we are today that there was not some section of the church of Jesus Christ that was not persecuted. So with 2,000 years of history behind this, I think it's safe to say between now and Jesus' return, there will always be some section of the church that is persecuted. And if you have luckily been able to live in a place and a time when you've not experienced that persecution, just pause for a second and recognize the odds are not in your favor, as Hunger Games would say, but that's going to continue. And if you haven't been persecuted, you're more of the outlier than you are the mainstream. When when Danny and I went to Zambia about 10 years ago, I showed a video uh, of the waterfall we watched on that trip. We also went on a safari in Botswana, which is located just south of Zambia. This is not a picture from it, but this guide reminded me of our guide. And we did a we did a Jeep safari in the morning, and then we did a boat safari after lunch. And our, our guide was amazing, and he taught us so much 
about not only the animals we saw, but their tactics and what they did. Um, he had almost been killed by a hippopotamus. He had driven his boat in between two hippopotamuses that were going after the same female. And literally, a can of Coke saved his life. He shook it up, and when the, when the hippo came back for a second attack, he threw the can of Coke in the hippo's mouth, and it exploded, and it scared off the hippo long enough for them all to make it back to land. There was a lady in their boat who didn't speak for three days. She was so terrified of the experience. But I think back to that moment and what he taught me about the tactics of hippos and lions. And, and basically what Peter's doing, he's doing the same thing for us. He's saying, hey, this is the tactics of your enemy. And so here's, here's what Peter says to us. He says, the devil is powerful, so don't underestimate him. You have an enemy that he personifies as a roaring lion. And he's saying he's, he's prowling around looking for anyone to devour. So if that is our enemy, the devil, we shouldn't underestimate him. That's one of the mistakes we make with our enemy, the devil, is that, that we don't give him enough credit. That he is powerful, that he is against us, that he is prowling around, and he's looking to devour us. So first and foremost, don't underestimate your enemy. But secondly, we're vulnerable, so don't overestimate yourself. Some of us, our problem is that, is that we underestimate the devil. Others of us, our problem is we overestimate ourselves. We think we're not vulnerable. And let me tell you, if you are a human, and I don't think there's any androids or robots in the service today, you are human, which means you are weak and vulnerable. So don't overestimate your ability to never be taken out by the schemes of the devil. That's why the writer of Proverbs says that pride goes before the fall, because when you think you're not vulnerable, you have never been more vulnerable. And finally, what, what Peter tells us is good news. He says the devil's ways are resistible. So don't disregard God's help that he's going to give you. He says in verse 9, he says, so resist him firm in the faith. Peter would not tell us to resist the devil if we could not resist him. So the ways of the devil are actually resistible. The temptation that comes your way is resistible. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that we are to pray when we feel temptation because God will not allow us to be tempted more than we can bear and he will provide a way out for us. So, so don't get it wrong. He's powerful, yes. You're vulnerable, yes. But his ways are resistible. So when God brings that help, don't disregard it. It may not come in the form you expected or the fashion you expected, but don't disregard his help because with his help, the devil's ways are resistible. And this is why in the beginning I said in the, in the big idea was that what we choose to remember shapes who we become. If you can remember when you're in temptation that you have a powerful enemy and that you're vulnerable, but what he's going to throw your way is resistible, you can make it through. But if you don't remember that he's powerful, you may get taken out. If you don't remember that you're vulnerable, you may get taken out. And if you don't remember that what he's going to do is resistible, and so you need to rely on God's help, then who you become may be the kind of person who is constantly defeated by the enemy. So what we choose to remember, it really does shape who we become. 
third thing Peter tells us. He says God promises us a beautiful future on the other side of suffering. So the suffering that you're in, and let's be really clear, this is not the suffering that you caused because you made a bad decision. That is not the suffering that Peter's talking about in this book. The suffering that God allows in your life for a greater purpose. That's what we're talking about. And here's what Peter says. And I read this verse to you 10 weeks ago when we started this series. I said, we're going to talk a lot about suffering over 10 weeks, but I wanted to give you a taste of where we were going and the promise of God, and we're finally here. So for those of you who are like, no more suffering. Yep, we're done with 1 Peter. But maybe you don't, but your life's suffering, I can't really pr- promise that. Here's what Peter says. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, notice this, will himself, this is something God's going to do, not something we're going to do for ourselves. He will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered, those three little magic words, a little while. Let's break this down. He says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So, so God is the source of our grace, the grace that we experience. And, and he's called us and promised us to this futurist, and it's glorious in Christ. And he himself is going to do this amazing work. And the first thing he's going to do is that he's going to restore us. Well, if, if you have to be restored, what does that mean? It means you've gotten weary. So if God has to restore you, what you need to expect is that in this life, you are going to get weary. If you've ever seen a a car that's been restored, that that car had fallen far from its original state. That Chevelle, that Thunderbird, that Mustang, it looked weary. But then someone came along and restored it. And so I just want to set your expectations. Part of this series, I think that's been helpful for some of you, is giving you accurate and realistic expectations of following Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to get weary. That may be what you didn't know when you started following Jesus, but I'll just kind of start a new season for you right now and say, you're going to get weary. But his promise is that after you have suffered, he is going to restore you second word Peter uses is that he's going to establish you. And so if if you're going to be established, what that means is that you're going to spend some time wandering. Some of you have moved here from somewhere else. Stop that. Most of you have moved here from somewhere else. (laughs) And you had to get reestablished. Not only did you have to go get a new driver's license, you had to get new tags for your car, but you had to start to feel kind of planted here. Some of you had spent 20, 30, 40 years somewhere else. And I'll just let you know, In two years here, you are not going to feel what you felt after 40 years there. So just don't even compare that. But what he promises is that after we've gone through suffering and we've kind of wandered and not really found like our place, that he's going to establish us and and help us to feel rooted and secure. He says, I'm going to strengthen you. Well, if you have to be strengthened, that means that you felt weak. And again, these promises, I think, are clues and cues, and maybe they can give language to how you're feeling. So if if you need to be restored, it means you're weary. If you need to be established, it means you're wandering. And if you need to be strengthened, it means that you're weak. 
And, and that's part of where I just think there's a part of us that doesn't like that language. I mean, who likes to be weak? Who likes to be known as weak? Who likes to feel weak? But what did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 12? God's grace is sufficient for us, and his power is made perfect, not in our strength, but in our weakness. So, good news, if you follow Jesus, you're going to be weary, you're probably going to wander for a while, you're going to feel weak, and then the last thing he says is that he's going to support us. Well, if you need support, that means that you're wobbly. This was the hardest W word to find of them all, I just have to say. I, I told you a few years ago that I picked up paddleboarding during the pandemic. And when I first started paddleboarding, the best word to describe me was wobbly. I don't have good balance. And so I fell off my board multiple times, ate it right into the cold water. I was wobbly. I didn't, have, I didn't feel strong on that board. And over time, my balance grew, my strength grew, and I became more supported and strong as I stood. If you can remember, or maybe you've got kids or grandkids, and you remember watching them walk, they were real wobbly. And we like to think that we're well past that as adults. But some of you, what you've been through, the suffering you've walked through, the adversity you've gone through, truthfully, you're just kind of wobbly. And, and recognizing that then gives you the reminder that, hey, I need that support and strength that comes from him because of what I've been through. Now, here's the hardest part about this verse. And I've been hanging with this verse for like three years. The hardest part is what does a little while mean? Because God's going to restore you, establish you, strengthen you, support you. Oh, that sounds so good. And I wish it stopped right there. But Peter throws in, after a little while. Well, Scott, maybe in the Greek there's some, you know, revelation. Nope. It either means one of two things. It either means this life here on earth or the life to come in eternity. And I don't know. God's going to restore you. He's going to establish you. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to support you. And it may come in this life. Or it may come in this life to come. The person sitting next to you may experience those things in this life. And then you may only experience it in the life to come. And that's what's the hardest part. Is when you watch somebody else experience now what you may only experience in heaven. That's where envy, jealousy, and anger can come in. Did God break his promise if he doesn't bring it to you in this life? No. No, God is not a promise breaker. He's a promise keeper. But you may have to recognize that God's promises may not come at the timing and in the form that you want or expect. It doesn't mean that he's broken his promises. It means that, yes, according to God, a little while is very different than us. That's hard. That's really hard. But when you recognize that God is the creator of everything, he lives outside of time. Our short life, whether it's 60, 80, or 100 years, I mean, it's like this. 
in his eyes, it really is a little lie. And in light of our future eternity, because all of us are eternal beings, all of us are going to spend eternity somewhere, our life here really is like that. Here's the last piece, and I don't want to gloss over it, because I think we tend to gloss over this kind of stuff. Number four, Peter says, none of us flourish through suffering alone. None of us flourish through suffering alone. What Peter does is he ends his letter the way everybody ends letters in the Bible, with acknowledgments. And typically, we kind of gloss over them, because you don't know these people. Like, if your friend made a movie, you'd be watching the credits to see if they thanked you, you know? If your friend wrote a book, you'd open up to the acknowledgments, go, hey, did they thank me? But we don't know any of these people, so we tend to gloss over the end of the book. Well, there's some really good stuff here I want to point out to you. Here, Peter says, to him be the dominion forever, amen. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Who's, who's Silvanus? Well, well, Silvanus is the guy who actually wrote this letter. I don't mean he created the letter. I mean he's the one who wrote it down. Most scholars believe that, that Peter dictated this letter. And Silvanus was not typing on his MacBook Pro. He was writing on his Papyrus Pro. And in the day of Peter and Silvanus, the person who typically wrote the letter down would go on to deliver it. Because again, before this was a book in your Bible, it was a letter. And so Silvanus left where Peter was, went to Asia Minor, where these five cities are, modern-day Turkey. He delivered it, and then he read it aloud. Because that's how you, they would have experienced it. They would have sat down, and they would have just read all five chapters. And then typically, the person who delivered the letter would actually help them to interpret and apply it. So, hey, this is what it means when it talks about husbands and wives in chapter 3. This is what it means to experience humility in chapter 5. This is what it means to have a living hope in chapter 1. He would have helped them do all of that. And what's interesting is that Silvanus is a name in that day that was a nickname or a secondary name for the name Silas. And Silas went with Paul on his third missionary journey. He was in the jail in Philippi when the jail doors and the chains were broken open. And Silas had ministered with Paul, and now he's ministering with Peter. And so what we see here is that even this letter, Peter couldn't write alone. Peter couldn't create alone. He couldn't get out alone. He had to have help, and he acknowledges that. He goes on, he says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So you say, who is she in Babylon? Well, some people believe that Peter had a wife and that she was actually living in the city of Babylon. But most scholars believe she who is in Babylon is a coded reference for the church in Rome. The persecution had already started in Rome, and many people believe Peter was writing from Rome. And so when he says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, what he's saying is, hey, the church here with me sends greetings to you, the church there. Peter also talks about his son, Mark. 
This is the same Mark whose name is in your Bible for the Gospel of Mark. Mark was not a disciple of Jesus. He didn't witness the life of Jesus, but Peter did. And most scholars believe that Mark's Gospel is based upon Mark's interviews of his relative, Peter. So, all these people, the church in Rome, Silvanus, Mark, why are they here? Well, first Peter ends with three things. It ends with his gratitude to these people. It ends with his humility because you don't end a letter thanking other people if you're not humble. And it ends with community. He acknowledges that this letter is not just his creation or even the Holy Spirit in his creation. It is the product of a community of people. And here's what I just wanted to say to you, because some of you have talked to me in this season about the suffering that you've gone through and the way this series has helped you. You might make it through your suffering alone, but you will not flourish alone. If you're in suffering, you might make it and grit your teeth and power through it alone. But there's a big difference between surviving flourishing. There's a big difference between making it through and enduring it and barely getting by and thriving and flourishing in the midst of it. And I think one of the key things that distinguishes the difference between those two is whether you go through it alone. Why is that so important? Because we're weak and vulnerable and we need each other. And when we're going through suffering, we need people to remind us what it is that we often forget. And I think one of the reasons that Peter includes this conclusion is not just to thank those people, but to remind his audience then and us now that we're not going to flourish through the suffering we're going through by ourselves. That's why the idea that you can follow Jesus by yourself without the church doesn't work in success, and it certainly doesn't work in persecution. It doesn't work in adversity or hostility or suffering. Yes, it is nicer and neater to do life without people. Amen? Maybe it hurts less. There's less drama. But when you end up flat on your back, when you come home from the hospital or you are in the hospital, when you get fired from your job or you get ostracized and cast out of that group, you need people. And you might make it through that suffering alone, but you're not going to flourish alone. And if Jesus needed 12 knuckleheads to make it through three years here on earth, you need people. You need people. See, what you choose to remember, it shapes who you become. Let me give you some next steps this morning as we put these into practice. I want to encourage you to begin practicing benevolent detachment. You say, Scott, what does that mean? Those are really big words. They are. Benevolent detachment is essentially 1 Peter 5.7. It's saying, hey, I'm going to take these things that I have become so enmeshed with 
and caring about them has started to not care for me. I'm going to begin to detach myself from them and give them to God so that he can care for them. It's not that you don't care about them anymore. It's still benevolent. But you're going to start detaching yourself. And that pause app I mentioned, I, I, I looked on this week. In the last three years, I've spent 800 minutes on that app. And the beginning of all of those prayers begins the same way. And so I'm going to ask you right now to just everybody close their eyes for just a second. Take your palms and put them face up. And I'm going to teach you my most common prayer in 2020, 2021, and 2022. And it goes like this. Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. Say it with me. Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. Say it again. Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. One more time. Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. Open your eyes. I've prayed that prayer hundreds of times in a row because my brain can't turn off and I can't go to sleep. I've prayed that prayer hundreds of times in a row because that panic attack will not go away. And this is benevolent detachment. It's saying, I care for them and I care for this. I'm not going to stop caring, but I'm going to start caring as if he cares more. And I'm going to detach myself from the burden that is on me and I'm going to cast my cares on him because he cares for me and he cares for them and he cares for them more than I care for them. So first, begin practicing benevolent detachment. Two, I want to encourage you to memorize 1 Peter 5.10. Let me remind you what that verse is. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you've suffered a little while. Like I said, this verse has been the source of tremendous comfort for me in the last three years. It's sobered me up too. It's reminded me that, you know, I don't know how long this little while is going to last. And you know what? I'm not going to restore, establish, strengthen, support myself. God's going to do it. But memorizing this verse has offered me tremendous comfort in difficult seasons. And then third, I want to encourage you today to reach out to a friend and share how you're really doing and then ask them about the same. So often we use the phrase, how are you doing, as a substitute for hello. How you doing? Please don't be honest. I don't have time. <sighs> hey, how you doing? Oh my gosh, I hope they don't share. I really don't care. Um, I mean, right? If we're honest. But you can't go through suffering with someone if they don't know you're in suffering. And you can't have community apart from vulnerability. And so maybe how you're doing is really well, and you reach out to them and say, hey, how are you really doing? And just FYI, I want to know. But we will not flourish alone, and so that means some of us have to go first. We have to initiate and say, hey, I just need to share. I'm, I'm really burdened by this, and I need to share this with you. So my hope is that in these days, you've experienced his living hope. And I pray that would bring you hope as we move forward in the days to come. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you are the source of our living hope.
We thank you so much that so often what you do in our lives is that you remind us of things we've forgotten. You remind us that you care for us. You remind us that we have an enemy. You remind us that things are going to be hard and difficult. You remind us that there are promises waiting for us. And you remind us that we don't have to go through this alone. In the places that we've forgotten, pray you forgive us. In those places we've isolated ourselves, I pray we would lean in to the people around us. And in those places that we're realizing just how weak and wobbly we are, I thank you for humbling us. Thank you that you have not given us a dead hope, but you've given us a living hope. That anything that has come our way has first come through you. You didn't promise us that we wouldn't have trouble in this world, Jesus, but you promised us that you have overcome the world. And we stand firm in that promise and that truth today. In your name we pray.